Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Where were you when you first heard about the family separation policy? In 10 or 20 years, it's a question you might be asked with some regularity. Since last summer, the Trump administration's aggressive approach to immigration, both legal asylum application and illegal border crossings, has continuously made headlines. The majority of the July issue of Harper's is dedicated to a single article, written and photographed by William T. Bowman, about the issue. I spoke to Volman about his process, as well as new controversies that have erupted since its publication, such as the photograph of Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez and his daughter, Valeria, after they had drowned in the Rio Grande. In the first paragraph, you write, I decided to visit Arizona, where my ignorance of local conditions might save me from prejudgment, end quote. What role can ignorance play on the part of the journalist? How did it help you or did you feel like it hurt you? And how should a responsible writer wield such a double-edged sword? I think that uh, a responsible writer and human being should always remember his or her ignorance. I've always liked what Thoreau says, you know, that we should never let our knowledge get in the way of what is far more important, which is to say our ignorance. You know, Trump, I'm sure, thinks he knows what is best. And um, there is an example of what good to cause militant stupidity in action. So I think that it's a great principle of human relations. Just because I've met other people doesn't mean that I know you or that I should make any particular assumptions about you. And just because I've written a long book about the Mexican border and have been there many, many times, doesn't mean that I should uh, start by saying, oh, I think I understand everything that's going on. I mean, that is the surefire way to, uh, um, to just recapitulate some kind of staleness So we can use our knowledge of past events and our knowledge of um, similar, apparently similar people, of of a similar place, of the same place in the past, and say, okay, this gives me something to build on, but we should never think that this represents what's happening right now. Something that you continually foreground in the piece, and it seems to really differentiate it from other reports on the subject is all of the barriers that keep you from actually getting a clear sense of people's stories. There are language barriers. There's uh, fear, fear of retaliation, migrants, lack of legal and geographical knowledge. And, you know, biggest of all, there are these fresh traumas that many of the people you spoke to are unable to uh, verbalize. So why did you choose to attend so closely to these obstacles? And what do they suggest to you about the situation itself and the way that it is represented? Well, um, the main reason that I want to constantly bring those up is to show that I am trying to be sincere and honest. And then based on, um, you know, my ready profession of ignorance um, and all of these other factors, then I can still try to say 
something. For instance, we hear people talk about the so-called freezer, the ice box, and um, the um, the lawyer named Rachel Wilson mentions it. There was a um, a migrant girl named Mybeck in Diane's shelter who writes about it, you know, in the guest book, and uh, Jose from Nicaragua told me about it. The guy in detention in Eloy. Catalea, the transgender detainee, talked about it, so on and so forth. And all I can say is that I have not seen it. I have not experienced it. And so it's possible that all of these people are fabricating. It's also more likely, I would say, that they aren't, that all of these people who have never met each other who are saying this very same thing seem to suggest that here is some very, very nasty thing that our government is doing. And if you're a trumpet or swan, you could probably come up with some great conspiracy theory for how they all say this. Or if you're a more sensible person, you could say, well, uh, it definitely does seem if um, all these people are corroborating each other that it probably happens. So that's why I do what I do, and I strip away whatever I'm not sure of. Right. And I mean, a lot of the piece, uh, you, you make, you've clearly made sort of a choice to present the interviews without much narrative or prose intervention, let's say. So how did you go about structuring such a massive story aside from relying on something like chronology? Because you really do allow these people to talk at length in their own words, or at least through the words of a fixer. Right. Well, ultimately, what makes this story strongest, whatever strength it has, really, comes from the testimony of these people. So my job is to arrange the testimony in such a way that readers can see certain patterns. I mean, what did I really experience, you know, in my week or so down there. I mean, I remember that time when I was approaching the border from the Mexican side and I heard the the wailing of women and children inside a truck. And that was a little sad and a little scary and I knew I had to get out of there. But I have not been living that life. You know, that's not much of a thing to report on in and of itself. But when we hear comparable stories from people, for instance, all the people who uh, were fleeing from Guerrero, you know, the, the Mexican policeman told me about a kid with a bullet in his shin who was coming from there. Victoria and Mariella, guests at Father Sean's, talked about how it wasn't safe for a kid to go to school, how people got hacked to pieces. You can start saying, okay, there's something going on in Guerrero, for a fact. And these other stories start building up a certain conviction about them that things are really, really bad, not just in Mexico, but farther south. And so, you know, I begin to have some sense of why so many people want to come to the United States. Photography is such an important part of your process and an important part of this story. Uh, 
Could you talk about how you compose your images and the process of selecting which ones you to use for the story? Because they really add a lot of, they're, they're very, you know, in black and white, very simple, but also very um, powerful. They say a lot. Oh, thank you. That's nice of you. Well, I have always found that the camera can see more than I can. When I am in the journalistic moment, the most important thing for me is to make sure that I establish some kind of rapport and the person can tell me the story. If I'm lucky, I can get down some description about the person's gestures and the sound of the voice and the background and what's going on and so forth. But the camera does not lie. At least I try not to make it lie. And so I try to compose my, my pictures as simply and directly as possible. So, you know, what you're seeing when you look at one of my photographs is a person looking at me. And you can see in that person's um, eyes and mouth, you know, whether or not the person feels comfortable with me. You know, the, the migrant Antonia's daughter, you know, was obviously very, very afraid of me, probably because she'd been traumatized by, you know, the American authorities or maybe by big, strange men who had picked on her very, very tiny mother. Who can say? But the photographs, in a way, are like the interviews. You can look at one of these and you can see what I see and you can draw you know, your own conclusions. The, the very first one, the one that Harper's decided to make full page, you know, is just kind of gruesome and sickening and horrifying. You say, oh, yeah, look at that. That is the new border to the land of the free. And to me, it's quite disgusting. And I'm glad that that picture has been made large so people can really see it. Yeah, I mean, these are... Um... They do say a lot, particularly, yeah, the one you're describing is of the part of the border wall where there's just a bunch of razor wire and it's very desolate. And it's, again, it's hard to believe that this is what people see when they are trying to apply for asylum, which is legal, which is not an illegal thing to do. Um, And speaking of photographs, um, what are your thoughts on the usage of the photo of Oscar Alberto Martinez Ramirez and his 23-month-old daughter, uh, Valeria, who were found dead near Brownsville, Texas? And it was printed on the front page of the New York Times yesterday, and it's generating a lot of discussion about ethics. And yeah, so what are what are your thoughts? Yeah, I saw that in the Times yesterday. I think it is a a wonderful photograph. I think that we should all look at it and say, do we accept this or not? And of course, in our government, I'm sure there are, there are plenty of people who think it's wonderful. The same kind of people who think that little kids who are locked up don't really need beds or toothbrushes or diapers. Or diapers. You know, it's... Uh, It's sort of like, you know, when the Bush administration was talking about torture and saying, well, it's not really torture if it doesn't lead to major organ failure. So that's that's the kind of country we are now. And people can look at that picture and they can say, well, 
to what extent is it our fault, to what extent did those people bring this upon themselves, and people can, can disagree about it in good faith. But any decent person will still feel grief over that very, very sad picture. Yeah, and part of the discussion is just noting that printing a photograph of a parent and their child who are just sort of, you know, lying there um, and sort of using that to make a statement. If a similar photograph of a white parent and their dead child, if that would be sort of used the way that this would, um, do you feel comfortable sort of like commenting on that aspect or do you just sort of see it as this is a necessary this is a necessary part of this discussion. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it matters what color their skins were. You know, the Mexican policeman who didn't want to be named in Nogales told me that uh, when he first started working, there were sometimes Ukrainians he saw trying to cross the border. And so, you know, if, if it had been a Ukrainian father and his little daughter, to me it would have been no more and no less sad. They're just people trying to get away from something horrible, trying to get to something better. You also mentioned the conditions in the facilities where child detainees are kept, where there are no, there is no soap, toothbrushes or beds. And there's also been a discussion about the use of the term concentration camps. Do you feel like that is accurate in the sense that these are a group of people who are being concentrated in a particular area? Or do you feel like that is an inappropriate descriptor to use here, given, you know, given other historical factors? You know, um, I guess I, I would not use that word. I do not think that, that we are as bad as the Nazis. At the same time, you know, when people make the point that the word concentration camp, the phrase concentration camp was first introduced in the Boer War, and it doesn't have to be associated with Nazidom, then I say, all right, if that's the word you want to use, that's fine with me. But it seems as if it's a way of inflaming people, and things are plenty bad enough without bringing in associations with gas chambers. Related to a sense of resisting, it's not like people are able to, let's say, destroy train tracks so that these people can't be shipped to a certain facility. There are a lot of smaller grassroots organizations at the border, religious organizations that are trying to help people who, you know, if it's giving them water, if it's giving them a place to stay, a warm meal, people who have legally been accepted for asylum, or if it's just people who are just trying to cross. Could you talk about your experience interviewing volunteers for No Mas Muertes? Because that organization made headlines recently for the hearing of Scott Warren, who faced decades of prison time for giving water, food, and shelter to migrants and ended in a hung jury. Right. And I understand um, that he may or may not be uh, retried. Well, to me, his case is just horrifically emblematic. Imagine 
going to jail for 20 years for leaving out water for people. And, uh, yeah, that's obviously an act of resistance if you have been warned not to do it. I think that no mas muertes, no more deaths, from what I can tell, is a very heroic organization. And it's really hard to, um, to not be in favor of giving water to people who are dying of thirst. You know, I interviewed one volunteer from No Mas Muertes, and she didn't want to tell me or show me very much. So again, I have to rely on what I've read and what I've been told, as in the case of these ice boxes. Someday, I would like to go to their area and you know, and watch them go out or go up by myself and, and see all these desiccated human remains, uh, see them leaving water. And possibly, if I am brave enough, I would like to take my chances with the law and, and leave out some water myself because uh, it makes me so sad and furious that someone should be punished for something like that. Right. And I mean, that idea of punishment I think this is a fundamental part of kind of the the question of immigration at large, where there's this idea for people who do support these anti-immigration measures or anti-asylum seeking measures, even that, well, they're breaking the law. These people are breaking the law. But what that punishment should be does not seem to be agreed upon. And what we have instead is this horrific situation where people are being deprived of the ability to keep themselves clean, the beds being crowded into these places. And there doesn't seem to be a, um, at least from my experience, there doesn't seem to be an attempt to figure out what is appropriate. What is the appropriate punishment for somebody who crosses the border? if someone feels like there needs to be a punishment. So in, you know, when you were sort of speaking to people who were, you know, pro-Trump, did you get a sense of what they wanted to happen to these people? Um, not really. I mean, but it, it seems as if their opinions differ. Generally, a lot of these trumpeters are about money and resources. They're saying, oh, you know, we can't let all of these people in because, you know, they're going to waste all of our taxpayer dollars. And if that's really the argument, I would say, well, all right, what about all the field workers I know who come across illegally on a borrowed Social Security number, which means they're paying in tax dollars that they will never get back, and those are benefiting us? Or what about some of the People, you know, who I have interviewed, you know, who've spent months or longer in these detention centers at vast taxpayer expense. You know, I would like to see someone do a cost-benefit analysis of how much it costs to put an immigrant in prison or in detention for a year versus um, sending his kid to a public school for a year. But it seems like the idea of punishment is is not so much because these people deserve it, that's what the anti-immigrant people would say, but because they want to deter them. So 
maybe in a way it would be more honest of them if they did advocate for Nazi concentration camps and gas chambers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a, it certainly seems like this idea of deterrence. We've been in this situation for many years now and it hasn't deterred people. So it just seems like cruelty and that it's becoming more and more intractable and there's just more people dying unnecessarily and more people being stuck in these horrible detention centers. That's right. And I think um, one issue that maybe we should try to address in good faith on the right and on the left is what is carrying capacity and how should we address it consistently? You know, so I've heard some trumpeters saying things like, you know, it's just not fair that all these people want to come over and take what we have. There isn't enough to go around. Well, first of all, is that true? And what are the things that, you know, that we have that they shouldn't be allowed to have? And second of all, if we're going to start going that route, then what about other kinds of carrying capacity? Should we have a restriction on American population or on corporate water use or on the use of coal? You never hear them talking about that. So by all means, let's talk about should there be a quota on immigrants and should there be a quota on these other things? And let's see if we can weed out the hypocrites. The, the idea of scarcity in the richest country on the planet seems a little laughable. But again, I think depending on where you're, you're coming from, it can seem like there isn't anything for anybody and there should not be any more people coming in because, again, we have um, Well, Bernie Sanders just wrote about how Trump is a corporate socialist, which I think is an accurate description there. So again, it, it seems as time goes on, it's just becoming more intractable and there is kind of less attempt to talk to people. And one of the things I have to ask you is when you were visiting um, an organization that was helping migrants, there were some pro-Trump people who were helping out with that organization. And it's just, uh, I would be curious to hear if you spoke to any of them or got a sense of their motivations for helping. I did not uh, meet any of those people, but I will say that um, many of my friends are trumpeter swans, and uh, we all get along. And the worst thing that we can do is stop talking to each other. You know, I, I disagree very, very much with almost everything that Trump stands for. And I think that his supporters are mistaken about a lot of things. But I do know that many of us are single-issue voters. And for me, you know, one of the, the most important things is um, no torture. I'm still really, really upset about the torture in the Bush years and the fact that no one was ever really prosecuted. And now Trump wants to bring back waterboarding, so he says, at least from one minute to the next. So for me, the most important thing I would vote for would be a government that is not cruel. I have a friend who is Jewish, and because of what happened in the Holocaust, 
very, very much believes that people should be armed. He's very pro-Second Amendment, part of the NRA, and therefore he is very pro-Trump. So once you get attached to one particular candidate or party, it's very, very convenient to just go along with the other planks in the platform. So I feel that my job as a communicator is to look at people's motives and try to understand why they do what they do and if it could be possible for them to continue to respect their core beliefs and at the same time dissociate themselves from what is cruel. Right. Did writing this story give you a better sense of what needs to be done either on a grassroots level or in terms of policy to work toward setting a humane path for asylum seekers and other migrants at the border? And again, that's a low bar, just a humane path as opposed to what we have now. That's right. Um, I wish I could say that it had. But the truth is that trying to figure out what specific political measures need to be taken is not one of my strengths. Like most citizens, I have a very low comprehension of our extremely opaque and often corrupt political process and how people go about trading favors and what is even possible. All I can do is say, this is what I have seen, and this is what I have heard, and this is how I feel about it. And how I feel is very, very sad, and not for the first time in the last few years, very ashamed to be an American and um, wanting the best for these people. Mm -hmm. Going back to something you were talking about earlier where people may read what you've written and they'll just write it off as like, oh, this is a conspiracy. These people are just saying these things. And in the piece, you know, when you're talking to the taco stand vendor and he says, oh, yeah, the caravans are just Trump. Like they're doing it as like a PR thing. And around this whole issue, and I think around of a lot of politics in America at this moment, there is kind of this feeling of conspiracy, that there is something either that's just something one person believes, or they think they figured it out, or there's sort of these mass movements of conspiracists saying, oh, well, what this is is not what it seems, and it's actually this big something else. So I guess, do you feel like, you know, as someone who has reported all over the world for many years, do you feel like now is a time, or if this specific issue is particularly prone to conspiracy and some feeling of we're not getting all the information that we need and there's something going on under the surface? Well, certainly with Trump in power, and of course, before him, the very secrecy-loving Obama, we are not getting the information that we as citizens deserve. On the subject of conspiracy theories, I have, all I can say about it is an intuition. And that is, you know, I have spent some time in the Balkans and ex-Yugoslavia, particularly Serbia, but other regions as well, you know, just teemed with conspiracy theories. And it was the kind of stuff that 
would be really, really fun and preposterous to read in some kind of thriller. Layers within layers, involutions and reversals, so that whatever you thought, it got turned inside out 25 times. And the result of these conspiracy theories was that the people believing in them could be pretty much impervious to the assertions, even the facts of others. Because once everything has been turned inside out so many times, anything else could be. And so whatever someone else says could be a conspiracy and there's no way really to get to the bottom of it. So conspiracy theories engender intolerance and violence. And so, of course, this is a time where there are conspiracy theories all over in our country. You know, we are descending into, into violence, into what Goethe called militant stupidity. So conspiracy theories work very well to promote that. And also, it certainly doesn't help that the president is repeating certain conspiracy theories that are either close to him personally or just uh, things he heard on Fox News or other conduits um, to alt-right thinkers, let's say. That is true. But, uh, you know, at least we can hope that maybe he'll have some of that glittering new barbed wire as an ornament on the presidential Christmas tree. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 